0: So Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5, um, Jesus had kind of shared he was in the temple and he was preaching, and as he's there, there's a widow that brings in all that she has and gives it. And so it's kind of interesting the next subject that comes up in the manner. Here, Jesus says, Wow, look at this young, this, this older woman, and she's giving all that she has. And then there's a question. Uh, from the disciples, and they're kind of admiring the building, the structure of the temple. And so we kind of have some prophecy that Jesus starts to give regarding the future of the temple, the Jewish people, and his second return here. And so some of the prophecy is going to happen within the next 70 years, and and some of it's going to come obviously a lot later and has not come yet regarding Jesus' return. And really, the main point is to be ready. To be ready for Jesus' return. That he is returning and to be ready. And there are many, many views on the second coming of Jesus. Eschatology is the word. And um, they all have their shortcomings. Every single one has their shortcomings. They've, they're debated. But there are two things that are non-negotiables to be a Christian. And that is the scripture clearly teaches we are to be ready for his return at any time and that he is coming back. He is returning. There is a second return of Christ coming and that line of Judah is going to return. And so um, it, it is impossible to teach through a portion of scripture without an influence of your view. Your view is going to affect it on end times, on how you see things in the scripture, um, how they fit together as a puzzle. I I do not believe um, that my view is a view that if you do not have it, you're not going to be saved, or you lack the Holy Spirit, or you're ignorant, or anything like that. But I do believe my view is right. And if I didn't believe my views right and I taught it, that'd be kind of weird, right? So obviously, not pridefully, but no, looking at the scriptures and studying these things and looking at them overall, I, I have a view, and, and Calvary kind of holds to a view of, you know, that the rapture is going to happen before the return of Christ, that there's going to be a seven-year period. We're going to be caught up in the air when it talks about in, in Thessalonians, and and that he's going to return at the end of that. And there's yeah, when you go through some scriptures, there's some hard things to come through and, and shortcomings that's to get over. But overall, looking at the different views, I feel this has the easiest shortcomings for me to overcome compared to the others. And so that's the the, the point of view I kind of hold to and look to as we go through scripture. But again, neither one of those views should ever come to a point to where it causes you to get away from the two main ones. And the two main things that's repeated in scripture, because God could have made it really clear, right? He said to be ready and he's coming again. And many times when some people get off on a view too far, it detracts from that. If you say, okay, we're post-trip and we're waiting, now they're looking for the antichrist to come to figure out when Jesus is coming. They're looking for signs and stuff and they're no longer being prepared for the coming. They're no longer looking towards Christ and his return. They're looking for the rise of the Antichrist or something before the return of Christ. And so that's where you kind of want to keep the balance on Scripture. And and again, it is repeated so many times in Scripture that his return is coming as we see as we go through. And so kind of understanding where that view is, you know, and, and keeping in mind always when we go to the Scriptures is to be ready for the return of Christ, and he is coming again, and the, the comfort in knowing that. Verse five, let's begin. It says, And then some of them them, or then some spoke of the temple and how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. He he said he said so they, they're sitting here, they're talking about how amazing the temple is. These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so as they sit there, and the, the, the count in Matthew 6 is a little more clear, the disciples are there. They're looking at the temple. They're looking at the structure, how it's adorned, the donations, how beautiful this thing is. And, and, and it was something to withhold. And Jesus here predicts that hey and he he predicts he prophesies that hey it is going to be torn down not one stone will be sitting on another and now it's kind of hard to think. You, you know, you almost want to put this in a movie in your mind or a picture to get what's going on in the Scripture. You know, we can get into the, all the when and the what and the prophecy fulfilled and all this, but if you miss the picture of what's actually going on, if you're a disciple sitting in this situation, okay? The temple at this time was 400 years old. Ezra returned from Babylon and built it, but then Herod came in and, you know, home makeover in a sense, Okay. It was covered with gold plates and white marble, okay? From a distance, and there's morning sun, you could not look at it because it was glaring back so much. You take an ancient world, it's not like there's windows and glass. I mean, this thing is glowing from a distance. From a distance, people thought it was a snow-capped mountain from the white marble on it. You talk about impressive. We do not have buildings this impressive around today in existence, you know, and so, You have the 12 disciples there. The triumphal entry came. Jesus came in. He's going to be the king of kings. We're right there with him. They're arguing of who's going to sit next to him in this temple. Right? I mean, you think of their mindset of here, this thing, and wow, and look, and this is, you know, it's like, here, Jesus, this is going to be your house. Aren't you impressed? And his response you know, it's just amazing to think. I mean, even at this time, they would swear by the temple. You know, your little kids, oh, yeah, well, I swear by the temple. And and to actually say the temple was going to be destroyed when Jesus said this, it was considered blasphemy. It's saying, like, God is going to die. You know, it, it would be very disheartening. I mean, and... and I, there isn't too much, I guess, we could compare things to. I haven't ever been to Washington and the monuments, but could you imagine if somebody who is God, who you know to be true, says, Hey, Washington, the monuments, the White House is all going to be torn down to nothing? If you knew that was going to happen, would you be a little concerned, right? And I'm like, Wait a minute. This is everything. Our freedom's based on that. If the White House is taken out, we're we're in disarray. Our government's going to be dismantled. Wait, you know, and this isn't just a government. This represents God and our worship to God, and it's going to be destroyed. It would be very uh, shocking to hear. And what I love is, as he says this, and he says in verse six, you know, one stone's not going to be left upon another, utterly destroyed. Like, there's going to be nothing left. And I just can't imagine what the disciples are thinking, at least for once. Most of the time when Jesus says stuff like this, they don't ask a question. It's like it went right over their head, right? They missed it. I'm so thankful they actually asked this next question, which we would all ask, right? If somebody came up to you and said, hey, the White House is going down tomorrow, or, you know, going down, you'd be like, okay, well, when? I need to know when I pull out of the stock market. I need to know what food I'm saving. And in verse 7, that's what they ask. So, so they ask him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what signs will there be when these things are about to take place? So they're at least taking him serious. So, whoa, okay, so we're here. This is going. It isn't we're setting up a kingdom. Oh, yeah, this is going to be your spot and my spot. And We'll move my chair in. and We're going to get furniture in here or whatever. He's saying, no, it's going to come down. And so now they're sitting there shocked and they ask him, when is this this going to be? What's going to happen, you know? And are we rebuilding? I mean, are we remodeling it? I know it looks good now, but Jesus, you can do more. I mean, when is this going to take place? What's going to happen? And so to sit there and look at this and and to sit there and say one stone's going to be on, they're asking, what's going to happen? When is this going to happen? And again, there's as we look at scripture. There's there's times and seasons. Many times when you look at Bible prophecy, there's a time of something going to happen, and other times there is a season of something. Now, a time has no specific end or start. It's a time period. You know when a time period's over is because it's over. Now, a season's pretty obvious. There, it's a time that starts and ends it has a, a cycle to it you know another season's coming after it and so Jesus is sitting here saying hey there's going to be a time coming when this is going to happen it's going to be destroyed and, and to look at it and to realize some of those the base stones of the temple were 60 feet by 8 foot tall, tall and 9 foot wide I mean you're not talking little stones or you know we're not talking the White House, the White House would be a lot easier to pull apart than this thing Oh, built solid rock there. And so this was fulfilled. In the next 40 years, this is fulfilled. You see, as Rome came in because the Jewish people were rebelling, they came in and they seized Jerusalem and they took it over. And the general, Thespian, was ordered and ordered not to touch the temple. It was a decree not to mess with the temple, not to destroy it. Their whole intention, they did not want to destroy the temple. They laid siege and didn't attack because they were worried about destroying the temple. The idea was if we wait them out and everybody dies, we won't even have to break the door down to the temple. But yet, a Roman soldier somehow threw a torch into the temple because the timber inside it lit it on fire it burnt it to the ground and all that gold on the temple ended up getting stuck between the stones and so rome pulled every stone apart because there isn't mortar so the gold ran in like mortar and they unstacked the whole thing and that's why today we have the temple mount which is a a mountain and the welling wall is literally a retaining wall okay so a retaining wall Nobody could go, oh, look, that's where your house is if you have a retaining wall on a hill. I grew up in the mountains. A retaining wall is just a retaining wall. They can't figure out even where the foundation of the temple was. They have a retaining wall left. That's it. And these stones are thrown down, and some are thrown so far away that they believe in looking at them that the Romans were good with, like, fertilizer-type explosives and actually blew things apart to get it all apart for the gold. And so even though that wasn't their plan, it was God's plan. So it happened. It made the emperor so mad that the temple was destroyed that he decided to level the whole city. Upset at it. This was not going to be a prize. The thought was it was going to be a trophy and a prize, right? And now the center of the prize is gone. Just get rid of it. Just make it don't exist. I'm not even worried. I'm not going to even try to keep the place in existence. And they leveled it totally from that. And so... The disciples are sitting here looking at this building, looking at what it represents, looking to these things. They've been looking towards Jerusalem, thinking this is our future with Jesus here. This is where we're going to be. This is where we're going to be serving. I mean, we've looked to this all our life. We wanted to come to here. And he says, nope, this building isn't it. This, this, This structure, this great thing isn't great. This is you, you see these things, you see these things as awesome, you see them as representing God, and it has nothing to do with the temple that I'm going to build, and where I'm going to reside, and where God resides in our lives now. They were looking to the wrong thing. And it's kind of funny, I mean, too much in our culture, we don't look at too many things that way. You know, we're not, you know, we're not, we don't have that many... I don't think we have that many seven wonders of the world structures in the United States. You know, you look at the Taj Mahal or some of these things in different places, but not here. But they were really looking at it. And sometimes you can look at certain ministries or something. You see, oh, look at this great work of God doing. Wow, look at their building and all this. And God does not care about the building or the structure, more what's going on inside and in the hearts. And very much in the same way, the building, Jesus had no concern for. He wept. When he wept for Jerusalem, in the previous scripture, it wasn't for, oh, I'm going to lose the temple. He could have saved it. It was the people and the rejection of them, the the temples, if you would, the temple of our heart, in that sense. And so, what are they looking to? And they asked him, you know, what were they looking to? And God's really directing the disciples' hearts and their eyes to what's important here. And so as they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when these things be, and what, what signs will they be? They're, they're sitting there wondering, what's going to happen? What's going to take place? You know, they're to be ready for it. And, and the amazing thing is, it's for, for all the arguments we get into in an eschatology of when and where Jesus is, you would think there wasn't much information on it, Right? But when you look at the Bible, you realize one-third of the Bible's prophecy. And then the Bible also makes another great claim. It says, if somebody prophesies and one thing they say isn't true, throw it all out. Do you know anybody else that says that? Any of these other, you know, you get these people that are supposedly prophets or this and that or Nostradamus. No, if it's not all 100% true, get rid of it. And then it writes down one-third of its content as prophecy. You know, when you look at the prophecies, there's over 100 prophecies and already over 500 have come true that the Bible's predicted from the Old and the New Testament. Just Jesus coming as the Messiah is over 109 prophesies that the way he came and and the life he lived and how he was hung on a cross is 109 prophecies that were fulfilled in his life alone. But in comparison, the second return of Christ compared to the first coming of Christ in his life of 109 being fulfilled, we have over 329 prophecies about the second coming of Jesus Christ, about his return. All nine writers write it down, 27 books of the New Testament. You know, you look at other subjects as far as being born again. How many times do you think that throws up in the New Testament? Seven times important to be born again? That only shows up seven times. How about repentance towards faith? Twenty-seven times. Okay? Baptism. Very important subject, right? Seventy times. Again, the second return of Christ, 329 times it's talked about. And you sit there and you look at that and you go, okay, so why is this so important that it's in there so much as a subject, as God wanting to know? Because it should direct your whole life. What is going to happen when you know what's going to be happening, when you know the direction you're going on should change your direction. You know, if you're a man and you're driving a car and you're trying to get somewhere, it's not about the journey. It's about where you're getting. If you have a goal in mind, you you need to, you know, if I'm trying to drive to Southern California, I'm not going to go north. I'm going to plan. I'm going to have a purpose. I'm now going to trust my digital device and not the guy at the gas station. And, you know, whatever, you know, your whole point purpose is that. If you are heading a certain direction, you're going that direction. How much more besides, okay, I want to take a trip somewhere if it's life, if it's eternity in the balance. You know, I was trying to think of things and I, I had read some things on the Titanic, you know, when people get their, their thought of what's coming off. There was letters sent out from people who wrote on the Titanic about how great their trip was to relatives before they ever went on the ship, before they knew what was going to happen. And even when the ship was going down, they were fighting people to put on life jackets. It's going to sink. No, it's not going to sink. It's going to take hours. I mean, you. You, you see some of the stories of the people, you know, getting served food and this and that and waiting and, oh, it's, you know, this is just, you know, they didn't believe it. You know, if they would have believed it, if they knew the truth of where things were going, their direction, their life, their attitude, their purpose would have changed. And when we sit down and God says, hey, I'm coming again, there's going to be a count. The line of Judah is returning. It is so easy to get distracted. You know, I was listening to a a pastor, Joe Fush, and he goes, you know, it was real easy in the 60s. We all came off drugs, and it was, oh, yeah, Jesus is coming back. And we were all excited and all excited, and then he didn't come back. And, you know, and it was so easy, though, because we were, you know, drugged out hippies. We didn't have anything. We had nothing to lose. We weren't leaving anything behind or nothing. And then we all started getting married, had grandkids, buying houses, got cars. Suddenly we don't talk about the return of Christ anymore. We talk about our retirement programs or, you know, this or how, you know. Compared you know, he goes, well, what's our deal? We've gotten numb to it. We've gotten dull to it. We've, we've now took our focus off the second coming. And to think, you know, it, it's interesting. It's like, you know, it's an important event. We look, we lay out things. I mean, if a flood was coming, if we all knew, okay, a flood is going to be coming in the next week, what would you do? How many of you guys would be eating lunch after church at a restaurant right now? No, you're going to be going home, you're going to be preparing, you're going to be warning your neighbors, you're going to be making things different. You know, or a fire or something, you're going to prepare. And at the same time, it's a little different though for a believer. It's not a flood, it's not a fire, it's a wedding. And he's telling us, I'm coming back for you, I'm coming back for you. Remember who I am you know, you accepted Christ, you, you said, okay, I'm your bride, and then we go, well, you know, he hasn't been around a while, and you know, maybe he isn't actually coming back for me, and you know, will he mind if I go hang out with, I mean, kind of, that can be our heart, deceitful in that way, and so he reminds us, you know, how many times he reminds us that he is returning the prophecies of his second coming that are coming, and it's amazing to think you know, when you, when you listen to some of these guys that have served with some of the presidents and stuff and, and, and godly men that have been around them, and you realize how, you know, the, the term is we're hanging by a thread. Our society, our, our culture, from everything collapsing, really is hanging by a thread. In their eyes, in our eyes, we know it's hanging by God's Word and it's time. But when you look at simple things, you know, one Triton submarine has enough nuclear power to wipe out 360 cities, has 900 times the explosive capability than was used in World War II on all sides, one submarine. And we have over 200 plus, and they probably have more that they don't tell us about. Floating around, we can literally annihilate And you look at what would it take, you know, what does it take to end it? And so you consider those things and you realize, no, our time here is easy. The things we look at, our structures, our governments, the things we have hope in, are we looking in the right direction? God says we should be ready. Here in Jerusalem at this time, as they sat there and they stared at the temple, and here the Pharisees are fighting over what? You know, the Pharisees fighting with the scribes over this. You've seen all this arguing up how they're so worried about Jesus and everything else. Do you think they would have given a darn if they would have known within a decade so many of these things were going to happen? There was going to be rebellions. There was going to be famines in Rome. They were going to lose two em- emperors. were going to be murdered and killed. You know, they, they wouldn't have been living this way if they understood the times and what was coming Even them, they wouldn't have bothered with Jesus at that point. There's a greater threat coming. And so the direction of your future, what you're looking towards, what you believe and trust is going to happen is going to greatly affect the way you live and why you live the way you live. And we are to be looking for the return of Christ. We are to be looking for that day. In verse 8 it says, And he said, Take heed that you do not... be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, go and do not, or or, therefore do not go after them. So there are going to be false prophets. Again, there was false prophets even a hundred years after Christ. There have always been false prophets. To this day, there are men running around claiming to be Jesus There's one in Korea, there's Moonshine, there's all these guys. There there are so many hundreds of fake Jesuses coming around saying, hey, this is the time, this is the end, I am he, I've returned. But do not be deceived. And when you know him, it's going to be easy. You will know the time then as it draws near. You will see these things. Don't go after these men. It's interesting to me as I looked at some of these fake messiahs out there, And you kind of look at some of them. They're all pretty much in the same crazy boat. But even the Muslims are waiting for their Messiah. Did you know that? The Muslim people are waiting for the 12th, the 12th, uh, what they call imam, okay? The Mada, their savior to come. They believe he will return and he's going to return the world to religion. And not just their religion. He believes he's going to make the Muslims, be in the Quran and studying the Quran and obeying the law of the Quran, and this Imam are going to make the Jewish people and the Christians obey the Old Testament. Kind of seems like the world stage getting set for one crazy person to come and stand and declare themselves God. It seems like an antichrist to me, but that's what they're waiting for. And so you see these fake messiahs come, and they're going to come, and they're going to go, and they come in and out. And I don't, you know. You see so many of these guys come, and people follow after, because they're seeking after those things, because their eyes are off the truth. You know, you're over here in a bank, and you notice they, every time you, you talk to a banker stuff, when they study money to make sure it's real, they don't ever touch counterfeit money. They don't ever look at the counterfeit. They only study the real deal, so when a counterfeit comes, they recognize it immediately. It's not right. That way, they're not used to seeing anything they should. Same with God and his word. Draw near to him, keep your eyes on him, and counterfeits come. It's not gonna line up. You know, nobody's gonna come up to me and say, oh, by the way, see this woman over here? She's your wife. I'll be like, no, I know my wife. I'm sorry, it's, I'm not gonna be easily deceived there. Same thing with my savior. I know him, I'm not going to be easily deceived. I know who he is, and that's not him. He's not some guy in Korea and you know, running around being Jesus and stuff. You, you look at these things. Verse 9 says, but when you hear of wars and, um, gosh, anyway, anyways, when you hear of wars and commotions and do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. And then he said to them, nations will rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilence. And there will be fearful signs and great signs from the heavens. So he sits here and he he explains that these things are going to come. But again, he is talking in this section about a time of, not a season of. And if you look back, it's kind of interesting when you look at and you look at the signs and, and you see these things that will come to pass. They're going to happen before the season. There's going to be a time period after Christ rises from the dead, leaves, of these things happening. And it's easy. I think every generation could sit down and go, look, if these are the signs of the return of Christ, it's now. Right? How many earthquakes have we had lately? Well, there's more, there's more. You look at the Mediterranean Sea and you look at what these volcanoes have done to the area and totally wiped out areas. You look at the Black Plague, you look at World War II, you look at these different things and it would be easy to say, okay, if these were the signs of the things to come, this is that. No, this is the sign of the times between here and here. If you were to look at the prophecy, and it's kind of like looking at two mountain peaks, you see one mountain peak, you see the other one behind it, and you think they're close. As you get up in a plane, you realize they're miles and miles apart, and what you realize in that valley are all these things they're talking about. And I could say, I don't know statistically, but statistically I'd expect that there's been more earthquakes and wars now than there's been in the past, because we have record of them. Simple as that. Now, how easy is it to hear of some war or something going on? Easy. I mean, there are whole areas that they've gone back, and they end up studying areas even 200 years ago, and they realize, wow, what happened to this town and everything? Well, earthquake happened, and they're gone. You know? Calico Ghost Town in Southern California. Nobody knows why they all left. It's an assumption that, well, probably an earthquake messed up their water supply and then they couldn't get water and so they all had to leave being in the desert. Why did you leave gold mines and silver mines with gold and silver in them and bell? Something happened, right? These things happen. We don't have a record of it. And so as you sit there and you realize these things are going to continue to happen until that day, this time we live in is going to be happening along these things. And we are not to be, again, we should be aware, this is a time period we're in. You know, we should be looking towards the Savior. We shouldn't be dismayed by these things. Why did he tell us these things were going to happen? See, and when we sit here in this room, there isn't many of us that have lived through a major attack. Even, even 9-11, I wasn't thinking God forsook us and we're going to die as a nation. But I guarantee you if you were in Poland when the Nazis came through, would that cause your heart as a believer to fall? And he warns us, he goes, these things will happen. Do not be dismayed. Do not be deceived. Realize these things are going to happen. And so those times come and and stuff, but when the second coming happens, there are some things that in Scripture very clearly show the season, not the time, but the season of those things. There'll be people that scoff is one of those things. Like, all this time has passed, where's your Savior? He isn't coming back. He isn't coming. You thought He was coming here. you thought He was coming there, there's going to be scoffers. There's going to be a war, the first horse of the apocalypse which the United States and, and our culture is kind of taking on the, the the four horses and stuff of the end of the world and how we are obsessed with it as a as a country and those things. But the first one's gonna take out a quarter of the world's population. Have we ever seen anything like that? Black Plague was a lot, but it was regional. A quarter of the world's population. If you took out a map of the world, take off South Africa, get rid of it, take off South America, Central America, the United States, Canada, Alaska, and get rid of all that, and you're close to a quarter of the world's population gone. We ain't going to miss it. If that happens, there's not a person in here that isn't going to understand. It's not a localized thing, it's a global thing and to the extent of it. And then after a war, which was going to typically happen as famine follows, and then disease pestilence. We're not talking flies and stuff. We're talking diseases that will come and take over. And those things kind of line up with what we see happens, what normally happens in those situations. What's scary even about our world today is after World War II and farmers had lost their farms and everything else and crops and were attacked, they were able to plant the next year because they had seed. Do you know our farmers don't have seed they can replant? If you lose the fields that we have that produce the seed, we lose the seed because we have plants that are designed to produce seeds to be planted once. They cannot reproduce again. The farmer has to go back to a seed company. There are some heirloom seeds and stuff like that, but in the majority of the food we eat in this world is reliant on plant a harvest every year. They, in other words, they'll plant fields that are just designed to grow seeds. That's it. They're not designed for a crop. They're designed to grow seeds and seeds that cannot be regrown again. And if you lose that field and that crop, you lose the seeds. You don't have other generations to pour into. There's a, there's a company down in Modesto I did some roofing on that was heavily into that. And so sometimes you ever drive by the freeway and you see like it looks like a field of fruit and stuff and it's like out there rotting like why did they grow that if they're not going to do it? No, you know well it must be government getting paid to chew it in or something like well sometimes that's just straight out for seed they'll go out and harvest the seeds they're not after the fruit they'll let it rot and ripen and then cuz they're after the seeds those those fruit aren't designed weren't designed to be eaten but just to produce a seed that will not reproduce so some of those things you know you start looking at as you study some of this stuff and the possibilities in the world we live in yeah it's very scarily fragile of what's, what's available and what won't happen. Although I don't think they've been able to figure that out with watermelons from personal experience. I've spit a lot of watermelon seeds as kids and they seem to grow every time. So geneticists got to work on watermelons more maybe or just seedless watermelons. But if you get the seed one, spit them and grow them. No, but you see these things and you see this time that's going to happen. And so if you're sitting there and you're looking at the world around you, and security from a building, security financially, security in food, security in storage, there isn't going to be there. And it's amazing as you listen to some people and, and the, the different things and, and you know, people go, oh, you know, I can't believe you don't teach this theological view. We need to be storing food and doing this and getting guns and ammo and all that. And being ready for the return of Christ is not being armed, right? neighbor comes over, Jesus loves you, boom, that's just my personal opinion, maybe I'm wrong, doesn't line up with scripture anywhere, anywhere. But you sit there and you look at it and you look at the different deals and being ready, being ready in our heart, being ready with our focus on Jesus, what he wants us to do, investing in the right things, not canned goods and um, bunkers and things like that, but being invested in the kingdom to come, knowing where we're going. Now, if you remember back in the picture earlier, okay, we got the disciples there, they've heard this, how, I mean, as a disciple of Jesus, if you were standing there, you're looking at it, you're thinking his rule and his reign is coming, he said some other scary things like they're going to kill him, and now he talks about the temple being destroyed, and you're asked when this is going to happen, And he goes, hey, this is going to happen and this temple is going to be destroyed and all these things are going to happen. But don't worry, those things aren't going to happen immediately. You're sitting here trying to process all this. And then in verse 12, he says, but before all these things happen, okay. So all those scary things are going to happen. But before all those things happen, they will lay their hands on you, persecute you, deliver you up to the synagogues and imprison you. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Oh, ouch. Um, plan B. I mean, at that point as a, you know, you're sitting there going, okay, you're looking at these structures, you're looking at the government, you're looking at co- comics, you're looking at everything to sustain life, but don't worry about that. Before we ever get to that point, you're going to prison, they're going to arrest you, they're going to haul you off before the leaders. So, you know, don't need to store up any food, guys. He's definitely clearly talking to the 12 disciples here going, hey, man, don't worry about any of that. You ain't even going to make it that far. All right? It's like, thanks. You know? It's it's just shocking to see sitting here and, again, not even looking to your own life. And we know as you read through the rest of the Scriptures and these disciples, these men, Peter and them there, did not regard their own life of any great value. From looking at the temple and their position and this being destroyed and their hopes of that to now looking at my own life. Not even that I will not sit in the temple. We're not gonna rebuild a new temple. I'm gonna actually be in prison. I'm gonna be actually on the wrong side of the law and the synagogues. They're not gonna be looking up to me. I'm not gonna be sitting there ruling reigning. I mean, my own life is, is coming to destruction. You know, this, is, this isn't there. It, just the thought process of what these men must have been going through. But here's a promise in verse 13 it says, But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. So, hey, when this happens, you're going to be able to share a testimony. You're, go- you're going to be put before these people, not as a leader. But you will be sharing your testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Now, it's interesting to think. I mean, if I sat here and said, okay, a week from now, you guys are all going to a judge, and you're going to have to explain yourself. And this judge has the ability to put you in prison for the rest of your life. How many are you going to be sleeping tonight? You'd be like, okay, what are the charges? I need to get a lawyer. Forget about dwelling on it. I'm going to get a lawyer. I'm going to let him dwell on it with me, exactly how we're going to present a case, how we're going to go forward. And God says, hey, you're going to be put in there. You're going to be giving a testimony. And don't even worry about what you're going to say. It's like some of those commandments you go, Lord, how am I ever supposed to obey this? I'm glad I'm not one of these 12 getting told this, right? And and his disciples getting told these things. And he says something, though, when you look at verse 15, it says, not the Holy Spirit, not um, God, not, you know, anything. He says, I will give you a mouth. He himself, God, Jesus is going to give it. So in their minds at this time, Christ isn't gone. He isn't dying on the Christ. He is there. So it almost seems like, hey, don't worry. When this date comes, I'm going to be your lawyer. I'm going to be there talking with you. At that point, you're like, right? If you guys were going to jail for a tra- or, you know, going in for a traffic ticket and you found out Jesus was going to represent you and you weren't speeding, mind you, you weren't actually guilty, right? That would take a weight off. Like, dude, I got Jesus as my lawyer. At this point, they probably took a lot of comfort in that, that he would be there with them. And he is just not in the way they would have thought, right? It's amazing how sometimes God makes a promise to us and we swear. It's like, yeah, this is good. It's going to be this way. You have it all worked out. When it's not start to work out that way, we start to freak out going, I thought you were doing it this way. You said, Lord, you know, you said this was going to happen. But he said there and he, he, he sets him up and he, and he tells him and he says, you know, Verse sixteen: You will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. So wait a minute. I got Jesus, my lawyer, but some of us are going to get put to death. And you will be hated for my, by all, for my name'sake. You know, I was, um, you know, you, you catch little glimpses of some of the media stuff out there. You know, and this one guy as he's sitting there talking about how um, Christians and all this are, are so unloving, or not unloving, but just miss it. We're cruel, we're insensitive, we're so bigoted, and all this. We're, we're bigots and all this. And right there he uses the name, Jesus Christ. You know, yells it out. I can't believe, blah, 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 blah. And he uses our Savior, our Lord, as a curse word. And I'm going, and we're bigoted. Right? I mean, you're sitting there telling how narrow minded, how offensive we are for judging people or judging gay people or whatever you think. But you're sitting there thrashing my Lord and calling, I mean, it, it just seems insanity. It's like you don't even know. He feels so justified in what he's saying that you're, oh, you guys are racist bigots, da 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 da. But yet you're slamming. Do you realize what you're saying, even? I mean, they're going to hate you for his namesake. Some of you will die. But in verse 18, he says, But not a hair of your head shall be lost. Now, obviously, he's talking about eternal things here. So even though you die, I'm not going to lose one bit of you. I'm not going to have one of you slip through my hands your heart and who you are, not one bit of you. There's nothing of any value, not even a single hair, that's going to be lost. By your your patience, possess your souls. Stay calm. Right? Stay calm. Just trust in God and stay calm. Keep your eyes on Him. And when you see these things, I mean, at this point, if I'm a disciple, I think there's some fear coming, right? I would be a little scared. But yet, again, if your eyes are looking towards Christ, now if your, life is, your eyes are focused on your own life and you surviving and you making it through this, and if it's based on you and your cunning, we're all gone. If the world is coming to an end, I'm not relying on my ability to make it and to survive. I'm invested in the next world. You know, if there's going to be a great catastrophe, a nuclear bomb or something like I want to be ground zero. I want to be out of here first. I'll let you guys try to survive it in your bunker slowly, okay? I'll be gone. Please, Lord. You know, and when I get into heaven, I'll have a better story to tell than starvation. I was there and this thing went off. No. Anyways, I don't, you know, where is your life? What is the value of your life? Is that what you're seeking? Is that what you're looking to? Are you ready? Is the things, your buildings, your possessions, and everything you own, are they ready for the second return of Christ? Is that your position, your heart to those things? What's your heart even for your own life, your own existence? You will not be lost. Verse 20 says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then then know that the desolation is near. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. What is interesting about this in history, as it goes through, and and again, when you look at historians, it's not scripture, it's not 100%. But when this day did come, and it did fall, and they seized Jerusalem, and they surrounded it for five and a half months, at this time, there wasn't a single recorded Christian in Jerusalem. They fled, they left, they took the warning, and actually, uh, uh, they went across the Jordan to an area called Pella. That's where the Christians had fled to, knowing this was coming. They believed this scripture, they saw it, they saw when Rome was coming, they saw the attacks, they saw all the, the calamities leading up to it, the rebellion, and as Roman army approached the Christians are said by the historians to flee, and not a single one was put to death. Again, not Scripture, but an interesting historical fact. They sat down, they saw it, and they left. Verse 22 says, For these are the days of vengeance, that all all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days, for they will be greatly distressed in the land, And wrath upon his people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into the nations. When this happened, and the seas of Jerusalem happened by the Romans as they came in and took care of and and leveled it and squashed this rebellion, 1.1 million Jews died in that siege. 1.1 million. Another 97,000 were led off to Rome to be tortured, killed, and turned into slaves. You talk about an event on a grand scale that was to happen that Jesus was pointing out as he wept for them. And in verse 24, and Jerusalem being trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled... When you look at this from that time forward, the gentiles have trampled on Jerusalem. Okay? And if you were God and you were going to say you put a certain target on Jerusalem, what would you say is Jerusalem? The Temple Mount. So, is it significant compared to any other generation that Israel's is back in the land in 1948, a nation again? Yes, right? I'd say that's something different. That's seasons are changing. Things are getting ready to change. 1968, Israel, the nation became in control of the city of Jerusalem. But yet to this day, the management and the care and the authority on the Temple Mount is still run not by Jerusalem. It's already being set up. It is not still in their hands. So is this time fulfilled? Do you see all the prophecies that say, well, a generation will not pass. So 1948, add a generation, biblically 48 years. 1988, we're out of here. Wait, well, maybe it was 1986, and now we're out of here in 2008. Oh, we missed that one too. And so you see some of these prophecies based on these things and where they're at. Again, God could have made those things very clear, but what he did make clear is, hey, there are going to be Gentiles ruling there and and setting there. But what is very clear also in Scripture is that there will be a temple in the end times. There will be a place for the Antichrist to stand up in the temple of the Jews in Jerusalem. So when we start to see these things happen, we can see the season changing. Now, is, is Jerusalem back when you look at the prophecies of the bones in the scripture and the bones were given flesh and tendons and it came back and they came alive again would you say jerusalem's back alive no even most of the jews in israel it's said to be about 85 percent of the jews in israel aren't even practicing jews they're totally secular jews they don't believe in any of it they do not practice at all but slowly as things change You know, there's a very small portion that desire the temple to even be rebuilt. And I think we'll see those things change as those dead bones, if you would, start to add flesh and muscle and they kind of grow in that. But continuing on, verse 25, and it says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars and on earth, distress of nations with perplexity, with the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts felling from the fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, when we sit back and you look at verse 24, in the middle of verse 24, it kind of transitions. When it goes from, when it goes from talking about and then early in the morning the people came to him and, right, no, Wrong portion of my verse script verses there. But when in twenty four, when it talks about the nations will be taken into captive, and then it switches and says, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until that's now going okay. Once that happens, this time period begins. And after that time period, now we're talking about the second coming, in my opinion. Scripturally, that it's now transferred. And it's saying everything here happening in verse 25. The the sun and the moon and the stars and this distress upon all the nations of the earth. And these things perplexing men, waves roaring, the heavens are shaken. Not just the earth, not just earthquakes, but the heavens are shaken. place. And these things are taking place. And you can look at the uh, Revelation 6, Revelation 8, 8, 8, 9, 15 through 18. And you start to look and you see how those things kind of line up. But we haven't seen those things yet. We haven't seen the heavens shaken up. We've had a lot of movies about the heavens being shaken up. Asteroids, meteors, all this. But we haven't seen that yet. And definitely we haven't seen verse 27 yet. And then they will see the Son of Man coming with a cloud and great glory. We haven't seen the return of Christ yet. These things are future to happen. And so... When we're looking towards the future here, we're seeing Christ returning. And it said, when these things, verse 28, and when these things begin to happen, look upon and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. So when you see heavens start to crumble and all the nations going and this great day of judgment, this great attack, the heavens falling, as a word, the the Bible calls it just not calamity, but the great day of calamity, we are going to be looking up, be looking up because your redemption is drawing near. Make sense? So these things are going to be happening, we're going to be looking up because redemption draws near. Now he uses this little parable here, and he says, then he spoke a parable to him, look at the fig tree, and all the trees, which is important because the fig tree many times just speaks of Israel. Well, in this case, look at the fig tree or all the fig trees, when you look at a tree and when they are ready to bud, budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now nearing. So when you start to see a tree and it starts to get buds, you know summer's starting to come, okay? They didn't have calendars the way we do and the weather and stuff, you start to see the weather change, you start to look at the rings, you can understand the season. When you see these things start to happen, it's budding. So you also, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things have taken place. Now, again, a generation. Is it a generation from when they actually get over and take over the Temple Mount set up a temple again and they're restored that way? It's not talking about the disciples here. At this time, right, it's not saying, "Oh, a gener- you, you, the generation of disciples will not pass," but also this word "generation" can be very clearly translated and actually very good. Um, I want to say argument, but uh, facts based on this generation being the generation of the Israelites, The Israelites will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. The nation of Israel will not pass away until those things are fulfilled. And so you see it and you, you, know, you go through different scripture and people come up with all kinds of setting dates and setting times. Again, if God wanted a date and a time, He would have set it. If He didn't want a date and a time, He might say something like, you will not know the day or the hour. Oh yeah, He did, darn it. So if He knew the day or the hours, I've all, you know I'd be all for that. I would probably like jump off a half dome, witness some people jump off, get raptured before I hit the bottom, right? But knowing God, he'd pause a second. Let me hit bottom first. No. But I get there, you'd be laughing. No. I told you. No. But um, you sit there and you look at this and you see these things and these things happen and it won't pass. And the heaven and earth will not pass away, but my word, heaven and earth will pass away. But my word by no means will pass away. You know, nobody else has ever said this. Not King David, not anybody else. His words. No, everything else will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You can sit there and you can trust in many things, and God's sitting here very clearly saying, Hey, everything's going to pass away, but trust in my word. These nations, everything's going to come, this calamity is going to come, but you can trust in my word. You can trust in my second coming because I said I was coming. You can be ready because I'm coming. I told you I was coming. You know, and one of the most important things as we look at here, um, in this craziness and everything else, what goes on, you can trust in God's word. I know right now we think, well, you know, we, we, I mean, compared to these things, if you were really to put yourself in that situation, suddenly all our lives and our troubles in our lives would seem like nothing, right? Oh, uh, my utility bill isn't a problem. If the stars are if we got meteors hitting the earth and everything else, none of that's going to matter, right? I don't even got to worry about my mortgage payment. There ain't going to be a company there to pick up a check. So I can write fake check. No, you, you sit there and you look at it, but yet to realize even in that craziness, we can trust in God's word. What a comfort. We can trust in God's word. And verse 34 says, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down your heart's be weighed down. You know, I don't... You ever think of... Think of a situation where your heart's been weighed down. You ever have something where you cannot sleep, it's bearing on you, it will not give you rest. It says, take heed that your heart is not weighed down by carousing, drunkenness, and carelessness of this life. And that day will come to you unexpectedly. Be ready, and be ready and living in such a manner that this life is not weighing you down, keeping you up, and destroying that. And we don't think of it that way, but when you start to focus on the things of this world, it gets very discouraging. We get very depressed. We get, oh, this or that you know, our house trying to sell this week, lower the price, this and that, this other house. If I focused on everything that would need to get done or possibly go wrong and escrows and everything else, you talk about something that's weighing. If you've ever bought or sold a house, I'm just going, God, it's your house. You can sell it to whoever, however, and if you don't want us to move, so be it. I just, I, I frankly, I'm not even gonna think about it because I know I'm gonna let this weigh me down and it's going to start affecting what I'm doing and how I'm serving and I'm, not going to, I'm going to be so focused on trying to figure this thing out instead of just trusting you. It doesn't even have to be just destructiveness, the cares of this life, not even just sin and destruction. This isn't a complete list, obviously, but those things can weigh us down and get our eyes off where it comes unexpectedly. We must be ready. We must live in a way that's ready. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to be reliant on his word. He wants us to be looking for him. For if I will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Wait a minute. A snare is a trap. How many of you guys have walked knowingly into a trap? I know at least 50% of us in here are probably women, so at least half of us haven't. No. No. You, you look at it, i don 't know I have I mean i 'm stupid sometimes, but you know like uh, I think somehow uh, yes, i'll walk into that trap, and I will be okay, but yeah, I know the rest of you guys in here don't do that that's just my problem, but you sit there and you go it 's a trap, it's a surprise it's a, a snare is a trap laid that's unexpected to grab you and it's kind of interesting here. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Won't, won't we supposed to be calling out? Won't we supposed to take heart that our redemption is coming when these things are happening? So we're supposed to be looking forward, expecting our Savior to come when these things are happening, but it's going to catch us all by surprise. That kind of sounds like something else like Jesus is going to come and die on a cross for our sins, and He's going to rule and He's going to reign. If I was Old Testament, that doesn't make any sense. Where we sit right now, this kind of goes, huh? How are we going to be? It kind of seems like there's two different things going on here. How is there a surprise? And then how is there a trusting that God's returning through all this craziness? And as you look at this and you continue on in verse 36, it says, "Therefore, Therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So it's going to be a surprise, but yet some of us are going to be hoping for His return to deliver us from it, but yet now wait, wait, we're going to also escape it? And we want to be counted worthy of those who are going to escape it? And some would say, well, yeah, the through the Great Tribulation and the seven-year period, we're not raptured out, but God's going to preserve us and protect us through it as believers? Well, it says escape and standing before the Son of Man. That doesn't seem like we're here. So how are we hoping and going? And so when you look at Scripture, and my view is the church is rapid, but there are also tribulation saints that are still looking forward to His return in this way. And so as you see these things and you look at this and the word escape means escape. It doesn't mean to survive or be preserved through it. It means to escape and to be found worthy of that. And so I believe the world is going to come to a huge awakening when these things start to happen. There's going to be many people that aren't saved, that haven't put their trust totally in God, who have an understanding that will turn, and they will be waiting and looking for the Messiah, and they will have hope in that. But also, like in First Thessalonians, if you want to look at it later, First Thessalonians 4.17 and there, being caught up in the air, which is a weird thing to say, right? It's a weird picture to have in your head. I mean, honestly, if you came up to somebody with no scripture thing that says, yeah, when God returns, I'm going to disappear and meet him in the air. God, that's odd. I've been raised in the church, so I'm pretty familiar with that. But to be ready for that, to where it can come like a snare. And you have the example of like the virgins and the ten virgins and to be ready and have the oil ready. And how he's going to come like a thief in the night in those examples. And so again, we have... Many times, two scriptures that seem to contradict, in a sense of going, okay, somehow we're with him, somehow we're there, and that's where you get all these confusions and the uh, the, you know these different views on what's going to happen, what's going to come. But again, I think when we get there, it's going to be all clear. Does anybody have any confusion about the second coming of Christ compared to the first coming of Christ? Now that after the cross, no. These poor disciples at this point don't, right? They're close, and they're sitting here starting to figure it all out. But for us, it's to be ready, to live ready. You know, imagine there's, there's a city, okay? And the city's there, and in the middle of the, it's in the middle of the valley, and on both sides of the valley, there are two very large dams. And you have government officials and you have government officials and and workers of each dam and they're saying hey with the snow melt and the rain and everything else the dam's gonna break and one goes well your guys's dam's fine our dam's gonna break no your dam's and they both disagree which dam's gonna break but they're both preparing they're both getting ready okay so as you sit there you're, they're both preparing, they're getting ready. You have one neighbor and you talk to one neighbor and he goes, yeah, I believe that dam's gonna break. And you go, well, I believe that dam's gonna break. But you guys are both getting ready for the dam to break. You're both getting ready and prepared for a flood, right? You go over to your other neighbor on the other side and goes, yeah, I believe in the same thing. I believe that dam's gonna break like you. Yeah, are you getting ready? No. Now we have a problem, right? I'd rather be with the guy that says, okay, the dam's gonna break I just disagree which dam it is or when the dam's going to break, but we're going to be ready compared to the guy that agrees with me and does nothing about it. You're not going to sandbag you. No, I believe, uh, but I'm on your, dude, I believe right with you, dude. We're on the same page. Okay, but why aren't you ready? Well, regardless of when you think Christ is returning, what is, again, very clear in Scripture is he is coming again, and we are to live and be ready at all times, in every generation, and as many generations have probably said before, but with Israel being a nation again, I would say the seasons are changing, and I don't believe there's anything scripturally that we could look at and say, he cannot come back today. I think that would mistake to say, well, this hasn't happened yet, he can't, ain't going to happen today, and many times, even though the prophecies of the Bible are 100% right, we just cannot see them clearly enough especially when the Lord says what? You will not know the day or the hour, right? If I'm sitting there and my personal view is, hey, if I'm sitting there and here, this antichrist stands up, I'm, I don't, why do I need to be ready? I know I need to be at that point. I need to be ready because he's here. So I know I got three and a half years and he's going to be back between here and there. And that's where some of the issues I have with some of the other point of views are. But the point is ultimately to live ready. And I don't think an antichrist has to stand up. I don't think a temple has to be built and sitting on the Temple Mount. I mean, back in the day, you're talking 40, 50 years to build the temple. Nowadays, I don't think it would take that to build the temple. You know, you see some of the stuff uh, China and some of these countries throw up in one day, you know, in the United States. It wouldn't take 40 years. It would probably take 120 years, environmental impact, OSHA—no, I'm joking. But we're talking Israel here. No. So you see these things, you know, it's very possible at any point in any time we are to be ready. Verse 37 says, in that day or in that day time, or in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. But night he went out and he still st- stayed on the Mount of all Mount called Olivet. Near the morning, all the people came to him or came into the temple to hear him. So he continues even after this. He's still teaching in the temple, still going on, and going back at night, staying outside of the temple grounds so that he would not be grabbed and, and run off because they were looking at ways to kill him. They had assassins, so it was safer to leave and go sit at the Mount of Olives with his disciples. But he continued to do this all the way up into the cross. But to sit down and look at us and go, okay, the most important thing is to be ready. You know, and if, if you know, you ever get somebody just looking for an argument? You know, oh, post-trib, mid-trib, you know, I joke around, I, I, I'm i not nice with some of these things, you know, it's like I, I do some things that are probably just mean-ish, you know, like the 40 Raiders, you know, because I don't care for either team or any team actually, so 40 Raiders, and so I'll, I'll say things just that. Maybe help put things in perspective, but you know when the people come up, are you post trip, mid trip, this, and I go, no, I'm three quarters and a half trip, or I'm first quarter trip, or you know, it just, how do you know for sure? You know, even all, all, you realize all our views could be wrong easily. But what's important? Well, are you ready? Oh, are you post trip or pre trip? Well, let me ask you a question: Are you ready? Are you waiting? What's your life like? Are you expecting him to return tomorrow? You know? Because that's what's important. You know, and sometimes it's just less, you know, if somebody wants to argue about him, ask him, are you ready? I need to improve here. This is the areas I need to grow. I'm starting to worry about this. I'm glad you asked what, what I was so I can, you know, look at my life and see if I'm ready or not. Are you ready? So I don't care when it is. We need to be ready. Amen? So let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that we can trust in your word that you are coming for us. That you are returning for your people. That you cannot wait, Father. That you will come back. That you will judge this wicked world and, and lay sin aside, Father. And just erase it that we might know you. That we will know a different time. A time without all these calamities and things. But just a time of joy in your presence. That we'll be made anew. That you will make Jerusalem anew, Father. God, help us just to trust in you that our lives would reflect what we believe. That you are returning to us. Help us to invest in your work and what you're doing that our lives would clearly just be a reflection of our belief. Help us not to be complacent or distracted or deceived by the things of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.